funnily enough, when we were launching our project uh, back in the last year, I told some colleagues, you know, we're launching our first ever NFT. And uh, I remember his response was, have fun selling five. Today, I am really happy to be joined by Mark Epps, who is the director of comms and Web3 at the ATP Talk. It was a crazy compressed process. I mean, we went from concept to execution within three months. Well, it was just insanely rewarding to see it go live and do so well. Love takes some basic data and tells the story of 300 unique or impactful moments from the tournament. Tennis is an incredibly data-rich sport. Around the court, you have 12 high-definition cameras, which tracks the ball in 3D and the player in 3D every 0.02 seconds. That's the type of insight you can only get on a podcast like this. <laughs> the project, first of all, sold out within 20 minutes. We became the number one trending project on OpenSea globally. To date, we've done over $2.5 million in trading volume, which is honestly staggering. So what does the future look like for the ATP? Big question. The experiences and the rewards and the access that you can grant fans in worlds and products that don't even exist yet is boundless. And so the question became, well, what actually do we have as a tool to play with? What can we what can we leverage? And the answer, while it isn't immediately obvious, was Welcome to the Sporting Crypto podcast. You may know Sporting Crypto, the brand from the newsletter, which you might subscribe to. But today we're doing our first ever podcast episode. And in this series, season one, we'll be talking to 15 leaders in Sport Web 3 or the intersection of those two things about their journey in this space. And today I am really happy to be joined by Mark Epps, who is the director of comms and Web3 at the ATP Talk. Mark, how are you doing? Great, thanks. It's awesome to be here. I'm going to start by saying thank you for having me, but also how excited I am that you are starting your podcast series. There are no superlatives to describe the Sporting Crypto Newsletter. It's read by everybody in the space, and I, I know that you're going to smash the podcast too. So Thank you so but much, really. Appreciate pleasure to be your first guest. I, I can't think of a better first guest because uh, we've jammed on, on, on lots of things when it comes to Sport Web3 the last couple of years. And so having this in in recording and, and getting it to an audience is going to be awesome. But why don't you start by telling us a bit more about yourself and, and your journey up until this point? Sure. So um, I've been working in professional tennis now for seven years. I've done a bunch of different roles across my time. I started in the PR department of, our, of the tour. I went through commercial and I've now landed in uh, corporate communications and also Web3. The ATP tour, for those of your audience who may not know, we're the men's professional tennis tour. We have a global tour of more than 60 events in 30 countries. We run from January to November each year. And on our tour plays all of the best tennis players in the world from world number one right the way down through the rankings. So I've had quite a diverse, quite a colorful ride at the, at the tour. It's been a great journey. I've loved wearing different hats. Web3, I started my crypto journey back in 2020. It was Bitcoin as my first sort of entry point into the ecosystem. And it kind of coalesced with the time that Sports started exploring NFTs, started exploring Web3 more seriously. Uh, and I'm now pleased to say that Web3 has become an official function at the tour as of January this year. Which is amazing, right? Like just, just to think of that journey and that I really want to dig into that journey. Can you recall the first time that Web3 was brought up internally at a meeting at the ATP? I would say it's probably around March 2021, right? It's around the sort of NBA Top Shots hype cycle, yeah. uh, like a lot of sports teams. 
we delved in like a lot of brands asking the questions of what can we do? What should we do? Where should we be playing? And it took us a really long time to figure out what our first play should be. We can talk about that in a second. <laughs> and what was the reaction internally from senior stakeholders when it was brought up by whoever it was brought up by? I mean, I would say that we are lucky to have really sort of visionary and forward-thinking leadership, both from our CEO and our chairman and also our, our board. It's probably not uncommon that the level of sort of technical understanding of Web3 as an industry isn't maybe the highest, but we got an incredible mandate from them. They said, we believe in this long term. We want you to go out, take risks, try not to spend too much money or get tied up into contracts, but go out and explore. And honestly, I couldn't have asked for a better mandate. And uh, we launched our first project at the end of last year, which thankfully did super, super well, which also helps with the reaction internally. But we've always been very forward thinking, I would say. And can you tell me how you ended up taking point on this internally? Like, was there a meeting room where someone says, does anyone know anything about this thing? And you put your hand up. Or was it like, let's just give it to the youngest guy in the room? So, I mean, we're a very small team to yeah. start with. I mean, as a company, we're about 150 employees globally. So we're pretty lean as an organization. Web3 started out, I guess, like most brands in the business departments and our commercial team. And it was a gradual process, you know, started getting involved in more calls. And then it quickly became apparent that of the teammates and the team members looking at this, I was the most passionate and the most involved. And so naturally, over time, it became my role. And you mentioned that there was an internal mandate and that you have kind of visionary upper management. But were there any people internally at the organization that were a bit more dubious and, and, and challenged you on a lot of the things that were happening? There's always the skeptics. You know, there's always the person in the office who kind of smirks when you walk in and asks how Bitcoin's doing that week. <laughs> um, and, and funnily enough, when we were launching our project uh, at the back end of last year, I told some colleagues, you know, we're launching our first ever NFT. This was December last year, so yeah. peak sort of FTX FUD. And uh, I remember his response was, have fun selling five, as in you're nuts to be even trying this. So, <laughs> you know, it doesn't come from a place of, uh, of malice or anything like that. It's just a, a lack of understanding. It takes a long time to understand crypto web three, the cyclicality of the market. Or, or a general dislike, right? I think there are people that maybe understand it to an extent and they're just like, I just don't like this thing. As yeah. I'm sure people were yeah. about... Facebook when it first came out. And now we're seeing the Apple Vision Pro. Yeah, uh, so where We're seeing like, this is not real life. Like, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I definitely agree there is like a lot of like people that I speak to where they're like, oh, what is an NFT? Like, isn't it just a QR code or whatever, basically? And there is sometimes fundamental misunderstanding. Sometimes people just dislike the technology or the, the culture, whatever it may be. So that segues really well into the love drop. You know, a lot of people in the industry will know that it's done really well. I'd love to get your A to Z from we're going to do an NFT project to you launch this thing on Artblocks. Yeah. And just before that, why don't you give the audience a, a little bit of a kind of one-liner about what love is for the uninitiated? Sure. I guess I'll start by sort of rewinding to uh, August last year. We had spent by that point uh, a year and a half discussing what could be our first step in Web3 and really coming to terms with the fact that we have a number of fundamental limitations in the space. The most obvious one, I would say, is around IP fragmentation. Unlike a sport like the NBA or the Premier League, where you have you know, collective license to leverage player IP, we don't have that in tennis. And it's just one example of the way that our IP is fragmented. So it's August. We have our year-end finals every year in November. It's an amazing event in Turin, where only the top eight players in the world qualify. It's the flagship event of our season. 
and we were desperate to get our feet wet and to start. And so the question became, well, what actually do we have as a tool to play with? What can we, what can we leverage? And the answer, while it isn't immediately obvious, was data. Tennis is an incredibly data-rich sport. Around the court, you have 12 high-definition cameras that capture an incredible amount of data every fraction of a second. You know, ball trajectory, velocity, player position. It's the reason, actually, that tennis is the second most bet on sport in the world. There's so many data points from it. And so we had this data to work with, but it wasn't immediately obvious how we could leverage it. And then we arrived at this idea of generative art. Now, I hold my hands up and say that I knew nothing about the generative art space until we started this journey, but it's an incredibly highly engaged and creative pocket of Web3. So our first step was to reach out to Artblocks. They were having a real moment at the back end of last year, whilst the sort of market was moving one way, the Artblocks blue chip projects were moving the other. Reached out to them with this, with this pitch, put out an RFP, and they basically went out to their community of artists and said, hey, who wants to work with the ATP on a generative art drop for the finals? We got five pitches back, one of which was Martin Grasser's. We were blown away by his passion for tennis, his energy, and also the concept that he put forward to us, which was love. And very simply, love takes 300 unique or impactful moments from the tournament. So it could be the championship point, or it could be a Rafa Nadal hot shot backhand. Mm. And it takes some basic data, ball location, ball speed, and creates from each of the 300 a unique and, in my opinion, beautiful piece of artwork that tells the story of the tournament. It was a crazy compressed process. I mean, we went from you know, concept to execution within three months, including finding partners, going through all of the, the legal work, um, front-end development, back-end development, building the team. It was a crazy period. I barely slept. And it was just insanely rewarding to see it go live and uh, do so well. And what was the reaction internally at the beginning of that three-month process when you got that concept from Martin? Was it universally loved? Was there a bit of debate or was it just a go ahead with this, this is great? No, positive. I mean, as I said, we got a great mandate from our senior leadership to go out and to take risks. And um, another thing that I'm super grateful to have is, you know, our, our team and our management really believe in empowering the team. You know, there were a few people internally who said, oh, I don't really get it, but we trust you. And actually, from my side, we gave a lot of creative control to Marty, the artist, and also to Artblocks. I think one of the things we did well early on was to recognize that we are not the experts in this space. They are. And so we were guided by a lot of their creative decisions. One example, edition size. You know, Love was a 300-piece collection. We could have easily made it a 500-piece collection, and I'm confident we would have sold out which is obviously better for the bottom line. But Marty came to us and said, you know, you take it from a 300-piece collection to a 500-piece collection, and some of the pieces start looking the same. And mm -hmm. artistically, it's not as strong. So we said, you know what? We're guided by you. We take your decision. And it ended up paying dividends. That's the type of insight you can only get on the podcast. Like <laughs> <laughs> um, fast forward a little bit in terms of it minting out and, and doing really well. Yeah. Can you give us some of the data behind just how well this thing's done? Yeah, sure. So the project, first of all, sold out within 20 minutes, which uh, was pretty staggering considering where we were in the market, right? It was beginning December, peak FUD. We sold the thing out in 20 minutes. We actually could have done, done it quicker if we had, didn't have a technical glitch, but uh, sold the thing out in 20 minutes, all 300 went. We became the number one trending project on OpenSea globally which was pretty cool to see. 
And uh, to date, we've done over $2.5 million in trading volume, wow. which is honestly staggering for a collection of 300 tennis releases, amazing, JPEGs. Yeah. <laughs> so, so really, really, um, really, really encouraging. Can you recall the feeling when it minted out? Because it's, as you said, three months of sleepless nights culminating all in this one moment. Yeah. And is it going to be like what your colleague said, where it sells for? and not 300 or is it going to mint out and like what was the feeling for you working on this so hard and uh, for marty and Artblox when it did sell out no honestly euphoria as you say like you've you've dedicated months of your time and your energy to something that you really don't know whether it will succeed or fail you've got support internally but then you've also got naysayers we all got on a call with the team funnily enough i was at the accenture offices uh doing a conference and excused myself to go and mint this thing out and, you know, we've got people connecting from all different parts of the world. You're on the Zoom call and um, it's go time. We had indication in the lead up to the drop that there was a lot of interest from the generative art community. And that was super important. We worked with an agency called Artex Code, who did a lot of the work building hype in the art community in the months and weeks leading up to the drop. So we had a sense that there was good interest, but we could never have predicted the level that we received. So that, anyway, we get on this call, right? And... It's, it's a manual process. We, we actually went with a, a Dutch auction, which is quite an interesting mechanic. So for, for listeners who don't know, you start at a very high price and you reduce it. We chose to do that basically to protect consumers from high gas prices and mm. congestion and, and failed transactions. But the one caveat to that is that Dutch auctions are, are run manually. So we were literally there, you know, Marty changing the price every 10 minutes using his MetaMask. And what was hilarious is that we started actually the auction at 3 ETH. And for the first price drop, he didn't realize that he was denominating in ETH. He thought he was denominating in Way or something like this. Uh, way ETH, yeah, yeah. And so for five, seven minutes there, each piece was actually on the market for like 20 million ETH, <laughs> <laughs> which is hilarious. So that was funny. Like we had five, seven minutes during the the twenty that there were no sales, and I wonder if that kind of drove additional hype because yeah. people saw this crazy high price and couldn't get their hands on them. And then, anyway, when the when the price came back to what it should have been, the thing more or less sold out at that moment, which mm. was crazy. And then, yeah, the reaction internally was was great, just to see that the thesis had played out. You know, the reaction internally that we uh, knew what we were doing. There was an opportunity here. It was it was so cool. Have you seen your colleague who said that you so far? I, I reminded him of that. <laughs> and uh, anyway, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't too bitter. He was, uh, I'm he assuming he didn't win, right? He did not win. <laughs> <so. laughs> what was it like working with Art Blocks and uh, Martin Grass, the artist? Like, yeah. What was that process like from going to them, getting the concept, and then working with them throughout? Yeah. Honestly, incredibly positive. Um, Art Blocks were incredibly. Um, detail-oriented and very hands-on from the start, right from helping us um, craft an RFP that would resonate with the community through to connecting with the artists. And they were on every call, sharing their guidance, sharing their advice, which was great. At the time, we actually launched through their side project, which is called Artblocks Engine, which is essentially their brand arm. It was very new for them. So we were kind of exploring as we went. And then with Marty, I mean, the guy is incredibly creative. He's actually best known for designing the Twitter logo. Mm. Funnily enough, he's got boundless creative um, enthusiasm. He works insanely, insanely hard. For me, it was an interesting learning experience working with creatives. I yeah. didn't have a ton of experience with that before. But no, we, we, we were a dream team. It's, it's funny when you work in this space. I mean, there were some developers 
who helped us build the backend, for example, who I still don't know the name of. <laughs> you know, they're pseudonymous. They're a, they're a crypto punk profile picture. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I don't know their real names, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> just one of the quirks of, uh, of the space, I guess. But yeah, yeah we, had a, we had a blast. That's amazing. On the other side of it, obviously, like anything you see out in the, in the open that does really well, there's always a bunch of hurdles to get over on, on mm. the back end and in, in the background. Yep. What were some of the things that took you way longer than you thought they would as someone who'd never been part of a Web3 project before? Something that you thought would take three hours that took like three weeks? Yeah, several things. The data surprised me, really surprised me. You know, as I mentioned, tennis generates a lot of this data and we got a dump of just raw data that I couldn't even read. I didn't even have the program to open it. Um <laughs> which tracks the ball in 3D and the player in 3D every 0.02 seconds, so oh reams of data. God. So taking this data and figuring out, okay, what are the important points that are sort of impactful? Deciphering that took time. Even basic things like how big is the tennis court? How wide are the lines? Then ethical questions. Well, what if the ball is actually out, but the art makes it look in? Yeah. So sort of integrity questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that took a really, really long time. The other part was legal. We had large legal costs, I'll be honest, in getting this project off the ground. And that was purely representative of the fact that we were working in a, an unusual space. What is a crypto wallet? How do we manage crypto payments? What about secondary royalties working with multiple parties? It was complicated and expensive, and we learned a lot. So for us, those two, the data and the legal, but then also the art. Marty, I mean, he worked 18-hour days for three months straight, getting the art to look like what it does. And it's deceptively simple. You know, you look at the artwork and you say, yeah, it's a tennis ball, but there's all sorts of minutiae mm. that make it so visually compelling. One snippet of input data changes and it's like a completely different image, right? I mean, everything. So so the ball lands, right? And it's got a speed and it's got a location, but then it's got um, a perspective. It's got a zoom. It's got a color gradient. It's got texture. All these subtle things that make it really visually appealing that just took time and time and iterations and full credit to him. He, he grinded until it was perfect. Mm. So. Just to get into the legal side a little bit more, I speak to a lot of sports brands, uh, rights holding and such, and this is one of their biggest hurdles. Mm. Was there anything specific that you didn't think was going to be an issue, but then ended up, again, taking so much more of your time, legal costs and, and logistics? Yeah, I mean, several things. I mean, firstly, I would say we, we had multiple parties working on this project, which introduces complexities, you can imagine. IP was another one that we just didn't anticipate, like who truly owns the IP behind the art? What, what are their rights? What can they do with it once the project is, is live and, and out there in, in the world? That was a big question. Even down to the minutiae of, of things like payments, you know, mm. at the time we as a company didn't have a crypto wallet. So because why would you, right? Why, why would we? <laughs> how, how, do you, how do you account for it? How do you, who custodies it? What is the transfer schedule? You know, when is it transferred to fiat? At what date? What are the tax implications? Who pays tax? All of this complexity. Like every question you answered, five more was behind the door. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, a, a deep rabbit hole we went down. I've been there where I've, I've been consulting or in-house at a company and a creative will be like, this is an amazing idea. Like we want to work with this Web3 sports project and they want to give us an NFT or they want to give us this or that. And I'm like, okay, like logistically, who's going to custody the wallet. Yeah. Imagine you've got like three co-founders. Are you going to have a Gnosis safe and each of you have a MetaMask yeah. owned by the company, but you have the keys to it? 
And again, there are a lot of horror stories. Uh, yeah, I remember there was a Swiss exchange in 2019 where the founder died and died with the private keys and loads of people couldn't get access to their crypto yeah. because this person had like the private keys to the vault, basically. Yeah. I mean, there are great commercial custodial solutions oh, out yeah, there. Absolutely. I mean, the big, the big players all offer great products. We're now, I'm happy to say, set up with, with our own wallets. <laughs> but, uh, but still, that took time, you know, getting that through mm-hmm. compliance and legal. Speaking eternally, what is crypto? <laughs> yeah, yeah. How do we account for it? How do we manage it? So we've gone through that process now, but at the time of love, we simply just didn't, didn't have the time to, uh, to get there. And reflecting on the entire love experience, mm. it's gone phenomenally well. There were some hurdles in, in the background, but if there was something you could go back and change, or if you were going to do this over again, what, what would it be? I've always said that love, phenomenal success, as you mentioned, but the one thing that we didn't do in the project was cater to, to true tennis fans, both by the nature of the project, generative art, and also by the price point. Mm. So it's always going to be quite a niche product. And as expected, these things were bought by crypto natives, by generative art collectors. collectors, They weren't bought by tennis fans. We initially set out to cater to both. And we had plans of, you know, having fiat on-ramps and custodial wallets to appeal to the tennis audience and marketing through our our CRM database. In the end, there wasn't the time. And we realized that we would be better served. Additional legal complexities as well. Additional legal complexities, more vendors, more contracts, more time, more complexity. Uh, and so in the end, about six weeks out, we decided to simplify the approach and say, okay, guys, let's go crypto only. Let's focus on one core audience, which is what we did. And uh, the results were positive. So that's actually, for me, the big challenge looking forward. And it's what every brand is grappling with. How do you make this stuff mainstream? How do you truly engage your audience? And how do you add value to their experience? And that's, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about that in a second. But, yeah, uh, that's that's what we're thinking good about. Good foreshadowing. Yeah, <laughs> looking forward. So how would you say the success of the Love Project had an impact on your mandate internally at the ATP when it comes to Web3? I mean, in January this year, we actually, as a company, made Web3 its own official function. So previously it had sat under the business team and now it's a standalone arm. You know, I mean, innovation is at the core of, of all of our business decisions. Our, our chairman and our CEO are constantly talking about innovation. We see ourselves as an entertainment brand. We're competing not only with uh, other sports, but we're competing with entertainment platforms, Netflix, Spotify, anything which grabs and holds the attention of, of consumers. So innovation is this kind of central thread to, to all we do. And I think they see and saw the potential for Web3 to continue driving that forward, you know, from a fan engagement point of view, from a revenue generation point of view, all of the above. So natural transition. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, it, it's own function in under 12 months. Quite the Pretty cool. Quite the yeah. Success. Before we move on to part two, where we take a look at the future a little bit more, I need to remind you that this podcast is supported by the HBAR Foundation, who are an ecosystem accelerator of Hedera, the most used sustainable enterprise-grade DLT for the decentralized economy. Together with industry-leading use cases and globally renowned partners, the foundation is actively scaling Web3 consumer engagement across the metaverse, gaming, DeFi, regenerative finance, and beyond. So Mark, love's done fantastically the ATP tour has now got a dedicated function to Web3. A very broad and difficult question, but what does the future look like for the ATP and Web3? Big question. (laughs) I really am an advocate and push hard for a focused approach and also doing fewer things. I think keeping things simple on love really served us well, and that's kind of the ethos that I want to take forward with, uh, with the tour. 
And so what that means, I think, is focusing on the use cases that truly make sense for your audience. For your listeners, um, you know, brands will receive a ton of emails from very well-meaning metaverse projects and social tokens and Web3 games. That's fine. And it may be a fit for your business, but for tennis and, and the tennis fan base, I don't think they're, they're quite a fit yet. So what are we focusing on? For me, number one is art um, as an extension of the, the love project incredibly highly engaged community. There's so many creative things we can do. And it's also something that fans get uh, intuitively. The second and probably the one I'm most excited about is the loyalty idea. It's a bit of a buzzword in Web3 at the moment between what brands like Starbucks are doing or what Manchester United is doing. But I see an incredible amount of upside in terms of fan engagement and also value add to our fan base. So that's super exciting. And then the third one is probably fantasy. Again, something that sports fans intuitively understand they get. Yeah. Those are the three sort of verticals that I would most like to focus on this year and next year. Amazing. Quickly touching on the loyalty point, I mean, we've seen what um, Adidas are planning with Alts, mm. uh, what Nike have done with Dot Swoosh. I mean, these aren't specifically loyalty programs, but quasi loyalty programs sure. to, to Starbucks who are kind of trying to engineer their success in kind of Web 2 loyalty to kind of Web 3 yeah. with varying degrees of success. What do you think the main reasons are that loyalty could be a really powerful driver and, and a great use case for this technology? I mean, for us specifically, I mean, let's talk about me. Absolutely, um, yeah. I am a loyalty nut. I remember traveling six months a year on the road uh, for the tour and just being obsessed with, for example, the Hilton loyalty program. <laughs> I remember going out of my way to stay in a Hilton hotel, even if it was 30 minutes away from the, the main hotel, uh, just to collect my points so I could have my holiday at the end of the year. So I was a complete nut and a real believer in the model. For us, I mean, I think it comes down to the structure of our sport. Unlike a team sport where you have a home base, you have a home stadium, mm. you wear the jersey, you sing the song, you're part of some uh, a social movement. Tennis is much more decentralized. We, first of all, are global. So you may live in a city like Hamburg or Beijing or Sydney, and you may have tennis in your city one week of the year, mm. and then not again for 12 months. It's very different. And then also it comes down to the fractured nature of our sport. You've got the men's tour, the WTA tour, and then you've got the four majors. You've got another body called the ITF. And so our fan experience is very fragmented. And so our vision for a loyalty program is kind of like a digital membership club that tracks your unique journey through the tennis ecosystem mm. based on where you live, what events you go to, what streams you watch, what merchandise you buy, and then is able to reward you. And uh, as I said, due to the sort of global decentralized nature of our fan base, I think that Web3 uh, is the technology that can really bring that to life. I've had a couple of really interesting conversations recently with some ex-colleagues and some, some friends about how the penny drop for many mm. on the CRM perspective with data rather than being kind of encumbered and reliant on siloed things like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And I only really drew this comparison when I thought about my newsletter, right? Because mm. sporting crypto, I can download my subscribers every day if I wanted to. And anytime I want to leave Substack because I don't like it as a provider anymore, I can do that. Mm -hmm. The issue with like CRM and like being encumbered by siloed verticals from a, from a data perspective is... Actually, this idea of like an on-chain network of fans that you can leverage and that can leverage the ecosystem itself via an application, um, whether it be centralized wallet on a phone or a decentralized mm -hmm. wallet on a, on a computer, that kind of network is really powerful. And having ownership of that as, a, as an organization and a, and a body 
is kind of a game changer for the data nuts, right? It's a game changer. I mean, I would also say like in what we're describing, actually, we as a company wouldn't have ownership of that data. That data would sit with fans in the individual wallets. In something like what we're envisaging, the level of granularity of fan profiling would be off the chart. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you could see every event that a fan has gone to across a season, when they've bought a beer, when they've bought a t-shirt, when they've watched a stream, you get a really unique picture of a fan's journey through that world. And then you take it a step further and you think, well, what are the opportunities, for example, brands? Limitless. So if you're a global sponsor of, of the tour, let's pick an Emirates, for example, and you want to reward the Madrid-based tennis fans who also might like to fly to Dubai for the tennis in February, you can airdrop them a a 10% discount, for example. You can look on chain, identify that subset, and provide really valuable and targeted rewards that benefit the user. And then also, when we think about it from a purely Web3 point of view, build a community or a, a database of wallets large enough, and suddenly all of these new doors open in Web3. So... If you are a top player and you're launching a new PFP collection, mm. you've suddenly got a million highly engaged wallets who you know love tennis, who you can whitelist, yeah. give pre-sale access to, give a discount to. So the data part is crazy and super exciting, and I'm, I'm by no means a data expert, but uh, I think it's I think it's something that a lot of brands should be very excited about. And the permissionless nature of some of those activations potentially. From an IP perspective, if like a bad actor wanted to give access to all the, all the ATP fans, give access to a drop or some sort of NFT to all the ATP fans, there is potential to stop that. But if Martin Grasser, you know, artist from the Love Collection wanted to do another collection that maybe was to do with sports more broadly or, um, you know, his best test tennis memories as a generative art project he could give access to yep. those tennis fans as well. So the, the opportunities are kind of boundless. And, you know, what we saw with uh, the news that we're recording this week, we saw EA Sports and Nike. Your Swift, favorite project, which... <laughs> your favorite collab. I've been so excited seeing how excited you've been about that. It's gotten me well, it's just like, this is the craziest headline ever. <laughs> um, but like, you know, and people have been talking about this for five or six years, this idea of kind of interoperability and actually from the brand side, it's, it's really powerful. And so the idea that, you know, a dot swoosh could create a Converse te- a tennis, a tennis legacy thing because Nike owns Converse and then reward fans via, you know, the ATP's loyalty program is really interesting. All those potential connections. I think people aren't thinking outside the box and broadly enough about how big the possibilities are. And, and that's, that's exactly the pitch I have when I talk about this stuff internally is that we actually don't know what we don't know. Yeah. Like, the experiences and the rewards and the access that you can grant fans in worlds and products that don't even exist yet is boundless. And by building on these Web3 tech rails, you are optimizing for interoperability and future value add to your fans versus doing something closed, Web2, siloed, which is closed to the Mm. world. So yeah, spot on. Let's move on from uh, loyalty a little bit. After the success of love, you mentioned that there are a lot of well-meaning people in the kind of Web3 world, but also the agency world reaching out, trying to collaborate on projects. What has it been like since the success of Love and since having this profile in the space as, a, as an innovator, as a brand? In terms of the inbound, how difficult has that been? There's definitely been a big uptick in inbounds from providers, other sports teams reaching out, asking for, for our advice, conference appearances, podcast appearances. Uh, it's been... It's been really cool. 
it hasn't been difficult. Sometimes managing the amount of of pitches can be a challenge, but uh, no, there's there's been no downsides to the success of, of love. And switching gears a little bit, has it been easier and more difficult since love, considering the kind of macro market mm. climate and also the crypto climate, which has been, we're definitely in a crypto winter, right? Yeah. But also from a macro perspective, you know, inflation, less expendable income, markets tanking. You know, I know the, the Nasdaq's up recently, but it's been carried by some of the big tech stocks, for example. Yeah. Um, and, and there are a lot of people think we're in a quite precarious situation economically and, and specifically in, in the crypto world. Has it been easier or more difficult since the latest crypto winter started yeah. for you folks at the ATP? Counterintuitively, I would actually say easier. We're obviously operating in a completely different paradigm right now. As you mentioned, consumer spending is way down. Things like sponsorship money, which you know, 18 months ago was, um, I wouldn't say in abundance, but was flowing around. Now that's not the case. But what has changed, I think, due to where we are now, the good actors are, are still building. And by extension, some of the less credible ones have fallen by the wayside, which makes your due diligence process a little bit easier. But I would also say like this quiet time has been great because inboxes are a lot emptier, right? It's a lot easier to get on the radar of the top chains, the top developers, the top mm -hmm. agencies, because not everybody's clamoring to get in. When the hype cycle does return, and I'm, I'm confident it will, and once prices start going up and once people are talking about crypto again, it's going to get a lot harder to get on the radar of some of these, these big players. So we've had very productive conversations. Obviously, we're looking at it through a different lens of reduced budgets, uh, reduced potential revenue from some of these projects. But overall, it hasn't slowed us down. It's been good. What advice would you be giving to other rights holders who either haven't dipped their toes in the water or have done so with varying degrees of success? I mean, I think the first starting question is whether this truly is for your company or not. Web3 for Web3's sake is not good for anybody. I mean, during a hype cycle, when there's buzzwords like metaverse, it can become tempting to jump in, even if there isn't a robust business rationale or business case behind it. So that's really the first question to ask. And then if you've decided that Web3 is for you and you do want to pursue it, I mean, there's a few principles I think that served us well. Keep things simple is one. Be comfortable with risk and be open to failure. Bit of a cliche, but it's true. And then probably I would say empower your team. It's a bit of a generalization, but I think this is a, a bit of a young person's game, Web3. And so there will be people at your company, possibly in ju more junior roles, who are passionate about this stuff. And from my perspective, I was completely empowered to go out and take risk and explore. And that was great. And that's what I would advocate for other companies to look at. And then more broadly, outside the ATP, but maybe there are some links here. What are you most excited by uh, in the kind of sports Web3 world or, or Web3 more, more broadly? I mean, the Nike story, the dot swoosh, thanks to you. Uh, <laughs> I'm extremely hyped about it. But no, of course, that's a, that's a massive watershed moment. NFTs and video games. I mean, mm. come on, like how many people play Madden, play yeah. FIFA, play yeah. NBA 2K? It's, it's enormous. Yeah, sports FC soon. There you go. <laughs> um, that's crazy exciting. The loyalty, as I mentioned, huge upside. There's a reason that brands like Starbucks are building out uh, a Web3 offering. I absolutely love what Reddit have done. Again, kudos to Sporting Crypto for breaking it down <laughs> in the most accessible uh, and uh, friendly way. But you can't argue with the success. 10 million wallets opened, incredible. incredible price point, marketed like a dream, made easy for consumers. Brilliant. 
also super bullish on art. I think there's a ton of upside in digital art. For me, art is the perfect use case of, of NFT technology. Mm, yeah, it makes so much sense. In the world, it's, it's perfect for that industry. And then to kind of go a bit more niche, I'm just, I'm really bullish on the sort of the level of developer activity in general that we've seen since the bull market. Developers have stuck around. You've seen incredible developments in layer two scaling solutions. You've seen fun stuff happening on Bitcoin with ordinals. So like the development side of things is really, really healthy and that bodes well for the next cycle. And I'm just looking forward for prices to return as well. (laughs) That will be fun. (laughs) And you mentioned before we started recording that you were quite excited in a weird way about the regulatory developments, especially in, in Europe and Asia and such. From your perspective at a big rights holder, how good is it to see some of those regs start forming in a much more formal way? Yeah, I mean, this, this conversation is happening against the backdrop of two crazy lawsuits in the last 24 hours by the SEC. So uh, maybe this is a bit of a mid- misguided or a hot take. Um, but no, I think, I think what's happening in Europe, I'm, I'm no regulation expert, but to have Mika come in, which has kind of standardized the rules of the road across the European Union, is encouraging. We're seeing other markets taking the front foot in making the rules of the road clearer. It's essential for companies. Like if you're a big brand, you can't be operating in uncertain territory. I hope the US can get its act together and uh, there can be a little bit more clarity on that side of the pond, but uh, bullish for crypto regulation in the EU and uh, places in Asia as well. I mean, even in the UK, right, we've we've seen uh, reports recently around recommendations from investigations that this needs to be regulated properly and promptly. Mm -hmm. And so I think seeing the EU do what it's done and also the UK having moved away from the EU and being like, oh, we should probably do that. And actually, there could be an advantage being a fast follower because you can look mm-hmm. at those regulations and be like, well, actually, that doesn't really work. We should be adding this and that and then formalize something that's a really good structured framework. And in Asia, you're seeing stuff in, in China with white papers, Hong Kong opening, you know, retail-based trading. Uh, I, I think Singapore, before we jumped on to record this, have just given Circle, like, is it an e-money license or, or some other sort of uh, financial regulatory license, which is quite exciting. And then look what's happening in the Middle East. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Kind I mean, of uh, crypto. Yeah, uh, in Saudi Arabia, um, UAE, uh, and th- there is a lot going on there as well, which is awesome. In a lot of the world, apart from probably I'd say the States, Canada and Australia, mm. we're seeing quite a lot of clarity uh, or, or the burgeonings of that. And I think by the time this technology matures a lot more over the like, next decade, there'll be some more formalized frameworks that help brands, especially, right? Okay. I, I wrote about Dot Swoosh, the amazing, exciting collaboration with EA Games. The two things that I kind of, not questioned, but queried and said, you know, two things I'm really interested in seeing how they develop. One is monetization and kind of incentive alignments, but two, the legals, right? Like yeah. when you go from, when you have a global game of 150 million players, like wow. Sports FC daily, what happens when someone in Canada buys an NFT and it's against the local regulations, but you're following like European and mm. US regu- regulatory framework, right? There's no global guidance on this thing. And so operating globally is a lot more difficult. And that's before you even start looking at things like tax and filing proper tax returns. It's an area you have experience in in crypto. It's not pretty. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's not easy. It's not easy. It can be expensive. As expensive as a tax bill to get a specialist to help. Before we finish up, conversely to what you're really excited about, what do you think is being kind of overhyped right now that you don't see in the same way as those people that are hyping? We don't see a big future for it uh, in Web3 or kind of sports Web3. 
I, I never like to say that things are overhyped or that I don't believe in them. I, I tend to think that things are either at the right time or, or early. So take the metaverse, for example, it's a lot of people like to criticize it in its current form. But I think you zoom out and you look at the direction of travel, we are going that way. We will be spending more time in digital worlds. We will be working, socializing, learning in these digital worlds. It's just a little too early. Something like the announcement this week with uh, Apple's Vision Pro is one of those massive step changes that takes that conversation to another place. But also things like, you know, Web3 games. There's a lot of great fun Web3 games that have an initial burst and hype cycle and then can't find a sustainable business model to mm. survive. Doesn't mean the theory behind Web3 games is wrong. It's just we haven't arrived at sustainable business models mm. yet. So everything at its right time. And, and that's why I come back to our approach and taking a very focused look and looking at the use cases that we know work and we know that will appeal to our fan base. That's, uh, that's why I have the thesis that I do. Amazing. Well, it's been a pleasure having you, Mark. Thank you so much. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, it's a bit of a boomer answer, but the uh, best place to reach me is on LinkedIn at Mark Epps. Uh, and I also write a newsletter inspired actually by Sporting Crypto called Into Web3. So um, please subscribe. Great breakdown on Ledger's uh, comms disaster as well from a comms specialist if you're a person looking at how to not do comms in Web3 and what they should have done. The comms is fascinating in this industry. Obviously, we, we it's it's always on. It moves incredibly quickly. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty. And then you've got this cast of characters, right, from like Brian Armstrong, you know, CEO of Coinbase, who's very pro-establishment, pro-regulation to more rogue players like CZ, head of Binance. I mean, it's just like you've got this really colorful cast of characters. Everyone's building the car as it's going on. And the comms is fascinating to watch. <laughs> like there are some great use cases, uh, great uh, case studies, and there are some some shockers so it's 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 fun to watch so subscribe if you'd like a breakdown and speaking of subscribe please do subscribe to this podcast sporting crypto podcast we're going to be doing this on a seasonal basis and if you haven't already subscribed to the newsletter sporting crypto newsletter which you can find at sportingcrypto.substack.com keeping you up to date on all things sports and web3 you can find me at pet berisha p-e-t-b-e-r-i-s-h-a on twitter and on linkedin uh, at petri berisha as well uh, and just remember that none of what we have said during this show is financial or business advice and the content is for informational purposes only uh, web3 is underpinned by crypto and crypto is volatile meaning you can lose money if you're buying these assets personally or as a business where we are recording right now in the uk the majority of crypto asset companies are unregulated Please give us a rating of five stars uh, wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it be Spotify, Apple. And if you're watching on YouTube, please drop us a like and leave us some feedback in the comments. Even if it's scathing, it will help the show in the future. Uh, once again, thank you very much for listening or watching. We'll have more of the Sporting Crypto podcast for you shortly.